Good morning, happy Easter. Hope you're all gorged yourself on eggs this morning already. <laughs> Just been in the other service and uh, lots of children looking starry-eyed or dilated pupils. <clears throat> uh, we have some serious things to address this morning. We want to get on and do that. I'm going to read a few verses from John chapter 20, following on from the other readings we had this morning. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, uh, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in a separate place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. An article in The Guardian this week by Simon Gathercole of Cambridge University headlined this, what's the historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived and died? And Simon Gathercole is a a lecturer uh, at at Cambridge University and his field of study is exactly this. It's what is the evidence, what are the scholars, ancient and modern, saying about this man, Jesus? And he says this in the article this week in The Guardian. He says, There were no ancient writers who questioned the existence of Jesus. There were those who resented his influence, particularly the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish rabbis and others. There were those who even accused Jesus of being a sorcerer. The the Greek philosopher Celsus was amongst those. But none suggested, even hinted, that maybe Jesus didn't exist. And the article carries on to say that among contemporary scholars, that is, scholars writing today, looking at various sources of historic writing and evidence around Jesus, uh, he says, amongst contemporary scholars, the overwhelming consensus is that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth who lived and died. And whilst the article concludes that that's the consensus of opinion, that's what scholars are telling us, ancient and modern. He says this, 40% of adults in the UK don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth ever lived. And so against the scholarly consensus, yours, neighbours and mine, and maybe some of us here this morning, would be in that camp. So I, don't, I just don't believe it's true. It's not at all true. And actually, interestingly, the, the uh, Guardian article finishes uh, with a question. It's a question I'd like to address us with this morning. And the question is this. He says, the question is not, did he live and die? The question is, did he die and live? That's the real question for us. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, of course you're going to say that. Have you noticed we're in a church? You know, I've listened to the songs. I've heard the readings. It is Easter Sunday. You can't even get away with it on the radio this morning. Of course you believe that. You would say that, wouldn't you? But listen, the Bible itself knows that this is a deal breaker. It's aware of the weight uh, uh, that's being put on this issue. Did Jesus 
die and live. Is it true? So Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, addresses one of the churches that he was involved with in Corinth, and he says this, if there's no resurrection, then there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection of Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, uh, we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you testifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there is no resurrection from the dead. And the affidavits, the signed confessions that Paul is talking about is that in his writing to this church, he says, look, don't take my word for the risen Christ. Go and speak to people who are alive now, that is when the letter was written. Go and ask them firsthand. Go and ask them. Tell them, uh, ask them to tell them what they saw and what they have heard. That's what he's saying. But he's, he is admitting, and he goes on to say a little bit later in that same passage, he says this, if Jesus was not raised to life, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Pity us, poor Christians, if we're believing in all of this. And that, so the writer for The Guardian would have us believe, is where it stops for 40% of our friends and neighbors and maybe family. And some might think, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. Smoke and mirrors, religious bunk, the end of the story. And yet, we'd have to also confess, if we're going to do it this way, that there's some pretty serious thinkers, ancient and modern, who believe something very different about this resurrection story. Let's start with Jesus' own brother. So James, who wrote one of the books of the New Testament, he was a very prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. He was, as it tells us, the brother of Jesus. And James was initially a skeptic. So before the crucifixion, James was on the edge of things, not really a follower of his brother. And yet after Jesus died and rose again, James met Jesus. And he became convinced that his brother was God and had risen to life. What would that take? What would it take for your, for to believe that your own sibling was the son of God? And yet that's what James did. And in fact, James, as I said, became a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And this was no kind of push for power. There's no power grabbed by James. Being a leader of the Jerusalem church was not some, well, what a great thing. No, the people who believed God in Jerusalem were killed, crucified, persecuted. This is what James took on. Such was the power of his belief. Let's skip forward to someone much more contemporary, although he's since passed away. Some of you might know this name, Charles Colson. Now, Charles Colson was special counsel to President Nixon, the 37th president and disgraced president of the United States. And in the early 70s, he was caught up in the Watergate scandal. And you're probably familiar with the story and films and all sorts that have been made about that. Now, Charles Colson served a few months in prison for his part in the scandal, but he came to faith in Christ and he spent the, the rest of his life really following his Savior, Jesus. And he was a smart cookie, and he said this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, says Charles Colson, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so he gathered together his own experience and what the Bible is saying, he says, listen, it doesn't bear any kind of scrutiny that these men close to Jesus just carried on through torture and some uh, persecutions and ultimately for many an early death with this lie. And all they had to say was, no, we made it up. That's all they would have to say and it would all have been over. And Charles Colson says, that's not how people work. I've seen people try and lie. It doesn't work that way. And for him, it was enough. I believe it's true. Another famous thinker, one you'll be familiar with, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories and wrote a series of essays, actually, I think they were radio broadcasts, uh, called Mere Christianity. If you are interested in pursuing some of these think- this thinking about Jesus, that would be a great place to start. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He said this about Christianity. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And he was saying, listen, as I've put my faith in Jesus, the rest of life has taken shape. Everything else has made sense, just like the sun rising puts light on everything else. So says C.S. Lewis. But listen, skepticism, it's nothing new. It's not as if we invented it. It's right there in the Bible. Again, back to John 20, we find this, Thomas, doubting Thomas. You might have heard that phrase, unfortunate, I guess, for him. Maybe we should have called him believing Thomas. But anyway, doubting Thomas, it's so it's stuck. And this is, what, uh, this is part of his story. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, so he was a close follower of Jesus, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus has risen to life and appeared to many of his disciples, and Thomas has been kind of left out. He wasn't in the group when Jesus met with them, and here he is uh, questioning those or having questions for those who had seen the risen Jesus. So he wasn't with the 12 when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers uh, where the nails were and put my hand into his side. Remember, there was a spear stuck in Jesus' side, which is what Romans did to, to, to kind of be sure that the person being crucified was dead. Unless I do that, I won't believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was there with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I think you'd need to say that, don't you think? <laughs> Peace, yeah, the doors are locked, suddenly he's there. Peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saying that. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out to your hand and put it here to my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And no surprise. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed Blessed are those, and even in some versions, more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, Thomas, he knew how the Romans killed people, and of course he knew how death worked. He sounds like a modern skeptic. Show me. And yet for Thomas, there he is, faced with the unshakable evidence. The Jesus he knew, with the marks of cross evident in his body, is standing 
right before him. My Lord and my God, what else would a skeptic have to do? But listen, Jesus commends Thomas, and then Jesus addresses us in this passage that we've just read. And we might say, well, where's my evidence then? Thomas got it, what about mine? Thomas seemed to have it handed on a plate, but Jesus said to us, more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Jesus knows that we're not going to see Jesus like Thomas did, but he clearly expects people to believe without this physical evidence. He even suggests, as I've said, that there's more reward for those who do. The Bishop of Durham, uh, N.T. Wright, in a 2007 lecture in Cambridge, uh, the title being, Can a Scientist Believe in the Resurrection? He talks about the different ways of knowing, different forms that we have of knowing. He talks about a scientific way and a historic way, and amongst scholars and university folk, that's called something. And the way of knowing is called an epistemology, a system of knowing. How do we come to an understanding of something? And so there's a, a scientific epistemology and there's a historic epistemology. And actually, the two don't really mix. You can't apply a way of historic way of knowing to a scientific fact, and you can't, you can't apply a scientific way of knowing to a historic fact. It doesn't work. So you need different ways of knowing. And he looks at those two, and then he offers a third. And he said, Look, you know about those two. He said, there's a third way of knowing. And he says, it's an epistemology of love. And you might say, ah, oh, that's, hang on, that's a bit wishy-washy, even for church, isn't it? Well, let me explain. When I, um, and if I've used this example before, forgive me, uh, but please listen. When I met Cheryl, who was uh, the girl who was later to become my wife, um, I wanted to know all about her. I wanted to know the people who knew her, and had there been books written, I would have read them. I wanted to know where she was and where she might be. And listen, I'm not a stalker. <laughs> but listen, I'm not a stalker, but I was falling in love with her. And those scientific historic, that wouldn't be enough when you fall in love with someone. It's not enough, is it? You need to know someone more than that. And that's what the Bishop of Durham is saying. There's a way of knowing which goes beyond those two ways of knowing. I had to meet her for myself and find out if all I'd heard and hoped was true. I was falling in love, and it required a different kind of knowledge. For me, in that instance, faith, hope, and love were coming together, beginning to make sense. It was to be one of the biggest decisions that we would ever make, and it was based on faith, hope, and love, not history, not science. It was based on something that we would all be familiar with, and yet we might easily dismiss in the moment, listen, and this is the kind of knowing that God is offering around this question of did Jesus rise from the dead? You see, we might come to God or we might come to a room like this on a morning like this and say, satisfy my mind that all this is true. Use science, use history, do something, tell me it's true, and God is offering something far more satisfying. You're saying, satisfy my mind, and God is saying, I'll give rest for your soul. He's offering you a way of knowing that goes way beyond science or history. Not that those things are invalid, they're wonderful gifts, I believe, of God, actually, and are to be included in this pursuit and in this story. But what he's offering goes beyond the two, 
And what the Bishop of Durham suggests is a way of knowing that we are familiar with, and that's the way of knowing, which is love. You see, the God who claims to be love is offering this way to know him, a way which doesn't just satisfy the mind, but brings the longings of the soul into sharp relief and then satisfies them. The blessings of Thomas are being offered to you today and to me right now in this moment. Let me finish with the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thank you for listening. We're going to um, sing a song uh, called Oh Praise the Name, and we invite you to stand after the um, third verse. So hold, hold it, hold fire for now. Um, we're going to sing the first two verses, and then you can stand at verse three.